With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. This is episode 42. I'm your host, Ryan Bell. And boy, do we have a show for you today. I'm so excited and I'm already feeling like I'm in a little bit of a rush because I have a few things I want to share with you. Before we jump into this week's interview, um, I spent uh, about an hour talking to my friend Connor Robinson uh, the other day by Skype. He's recently moved to San Diego. Uh, we missed our chance to conveniently uh, record in person. So we're, we had a, a conversation over Skype that you're going to really enjoy about his work with uh, Foundation Beyond Belief and the Humanist Service Corps. Um, but before we get into that, I need to update you about some really interesting and, and I think exciting uh, developments. Our, our last episode, which I hope you've heard, Rachel Gunderson's story that she shared with us has rocketed to the top of the board on uh, the podcast, to the number three most listened to podcast uh, so far with over 5,200 listens. She tells a story, as most of you have probably already heard, about being caught in a cult that goes by various names, but most recently is hiding behind a animal shelter, a cat shelter called Eva's Eden. And um, it has spread like wildfire. Uh, Rachel has shared it. Uh, her sister, Mary, who I'll mention in just again in just a moment, has shared it. Um, there's a Facebook page called Is There a Cult in Columbia, Tennessee? It's been shared multiple times there. Um, and it's just spread like crazy. And people have found it so uh, encouraging to hear Rachel's story of escaping from this crazy cult. And uh, not only that, but the cult itself, presumably the leader, wrote a statement that she posted both on the Facebook page for Eva's Eden as well as uh, for a little while on the pay on the on their website on the Eva's Eden website, and those have all been deleted and taken down now. Uh, but we uh, copied those, and uh, I just wanted to share with you that even though they don't mention life after God and they don't name Rachel uh, in any of their comments, they're clearly reacting to the story that Rachel told and many others like it uh, that are being told on Facebook. Uh, I just wanted to share with you a couple of. Um, of the excerpts from this statement that uh, that was written, because I think it reveals the nature of this kind of cult mindset. It's it's uh, reminds me. Well, before I say anything more about it, let me just share a couple of these of these segments. 
So she starts off by saying to our loving and supportive community, as many of you already know, we've come under attack again from the same group that has stalked us since we made the choice to make Tennessee our home. Rest assured, we have met with different branches of our local authorities, and the names and actions of the people behind this have been well documented. The authorities are monitoring the situation to see if this group increases its volatility. These, unfortunately, have become dangerous times we live in, and any sort of anger or hatred is not to be taken lightly. So, you, see, you know, right even from the first words of this statement, um, the, the leader of this group is insinuating that the threat is not from her and her group, but from people who tell the story of their experience of being in the group. Uh, and that even authorities have been contacted and they're monitoring whoever, like apparently the those uh, ex-members of the cult and perhaps Life After God, who knows, uh, to see if our volatility is increasing, um, whatever that might mean. Um, she goes on to say, we believe in simple, holistic approach to life and in the laws that what you sow, you also reap. Therefore, we wish no harm nor malice to any. Isn't that sweet? We ask that this group stop this slander and these attacks against our cat rescue, our founder, our volunteers, and our families. So, again, it's a complete reversal. It's, it's, it's a form of gaslighting, of talking about the victims as though they're the perpetrators and making the victims often feel like they're crazy for having these thoughts of, of um, crisis in their life based on what they've experienced. Uh, she goes on, to those in the group, you obviously feel hurt, betrayed, and wounded. We recognize this. We deeply apologize for any wrong that you feel we may have done against you. And again, you know, it's, it's, I suppose an apology is nice, but nothing has changed. Uh, nothing is, um, no actual restitution has been made. The cult continues to operate as it always has, as far as we know. Another little part, she says, we ask now that rather than have to tell the story, in quotes, which only perpetuates the negativity of causing hurt and harm, that forgiveness comes into play and that we release the pain and remember the positive. We don't need to continue retelling our stories or we become those stories. Rather than retelling, we can rewrite. Rewrite the very story that you believe caused your bondage and see the power that lies within that story to give you life. I mean, this is just, aside from being a kind of ridiculous psychobabble, basically saying... Don't tell the story of what happened to you. Just think about it differently or pretend like a different story happened. Rewrite it and you'll see that the bondage that you experience isn't really bondage. It's just, it's just insanity. And, and then finally she says, so we ask this group to stop pursuing these articles and stories. Can we not just agree to disagree? No, 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 we cannot. We cannot just agree to disagree. She says, in, and in that still respect one's own right to live in peace. See, this is the thing. Someone deprives an individual and a group of individuals of their peace and happiness and prosperity. And then when they're called out about it, they want everyone to just stop criticizing or telling any stories so that we can all just live in peace. Well, we would like to all live in peace. We would love for Mary and Rachel not to have had 10 years of uh, psychological torture in their life. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately they did. And they've overcome that now. And they have a right to tell their stories. We have a right to hear them and share them for the benefit of others so that others that may be caught in the snare of this or any other kind of uh, cultic group could find freedom. Um, I don't know if you also saw, um, we shared it on a couple of our pages, but uh, Mary also shared her story. This is Rachel's sister. 
And uh, you can find this on the Facebook page, Is There a Cult in Columbia, Tennessee? It was posted on July 22nd. It's still quite close to the top of the page. Um, but she says very movingly um, that she's not going to be quiet anymore. She's going to tell this story in spite of how hard it is. And she says, uh, and I quote now from Mary, why am I coming forth with this information now? I will tell you why. I will not, I won't ever, ever not stand up for my sister again. I will never roll over quietly and let evil continue if I have the power to speak against it. It's just beautiful. I mean, just so moving. And I'm so grateful for the courage that both Rachel and Mary and so many others have had to speak out because I can tell you, uh, from talking to countless people who have been trapped in abusive relationships, uh, in abusive groups, that the fear of speaking out is very real. Um, even if it's not um, ever going to come to fruition, um, the fear of repercussions, reprisals from group leaders or, or people that are powerful, that are harming you in your life, um, it's very difficult to speak out in the context of that type of abuse and it takes a great deal of courage. So thank you to Mary, and thank you again to Rachel for sharing your story. If you have not heard episode 41, where Rachel goes into great detail about her experience, I highly encourage you to do that. Very quickly, and I'll probably share more about this in coming episodes. I don't want to take too much time here, but at the Life After God website, I've updated uh, the calendar of events. If you just go to lifeaftergod.org, and click on the tab that says events, you'll see uh, there's quite a few things coming up in August. If you're in the Southern California area, there are a couple of things that you could uh, attend personally. I'm doing a live podcast on August 6th with uh, Kester Bruin. Um, he is a, a British uh, leader and speaker and author. Uh, he's been a part of the emerging Christian movement in Great Britain uh, and uh, is now uh, touring with a memoir that's just beautiful. And I can't wait to talk to him about that. Um, I'm going to be engaging in something I've never done before, a public conversation in front of a Christian audience with a Christian apologist on the 27th. And if you are in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area, or would like to come to Los Angeles for that weekend, I could really use the moral support. Um, the details are on the website, but I'm going to be in conversation with Sean McDowell. It's going to be moderated and hosted. Well, it's going to be hosted by a church in Northridge, California, um, and it's going to be moderated by Justin Brierley, who is the host of the very popular British radio show called Unbelievable, question mark. He frequently hosts Christians and atheists together or Christians and agnostics together on his show and moderates these uh, respectful dialogues uh, across differences uh, in theology and Christian practice and um, atheism and agnosticism. And he's a, a real gentleman and strives to his utmost to create a, an environment of, of genuine dialogue. And so I'm hopeful and excited. First of all, I'm excited to meet Justin. And uh, I was on his show in February of 2014, right when I started my year without God. And uh, I'm excited to meet him in person and also engage in this conversation with Sean. I will provide uh, more information uh, on that. I, actually, I posted an article about that on my Year Without God blog, um, but I will share more about that on the Year Without God Facebook page as well as on the website. Finally, on the 28th, I'm speaking at the Sunday Assembly in San Diego. This will be my second time speaking at Sunday Assembly San Diego. So if you are in San Diego or around San Diego, come out and hang out, say hello, and uh, it's a great uh, group of people. Now, let's get to the conversation that we have for you today. 
Um, I have known Connor Robinson for a couple of years now. I first met him, I think I first met him in the context of Sunday Assembly Los Angeles. Now, he's a native of Los Angeles, though he just recently moved um, to San Diego. Um, but he is a remarkable individual. He was the founder of Yale's Humanist Society and the Pathfinder Project uh, with Foundation Beyond Belief, and he now directs uh, the Humanist Service Corps as well. And rather than me trying to explain to you what the Humanist Service Corps is, I'm going to let Connor do that himself. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Connor Robinson. Hey, Connor, welcome to the Life After God podcast. I'm excited to be here, Ryan. Thanks. Tell us a little about who you are. Give us the short bio, and um, and then we'll. I'm excited to jump into some of the to discussing some of the projects that you've been working on. And uh... right. So my name's Connor Robinson, and my main gig is I'm the program director for something called the Humanist Service Corps, which is the first and only international volunteering opportunity guided by the principles of humanism. And that's a program that I launched for Foundation Beyond Belief. And I'm now also the supervisor for a couple other programs at Foundation Beyond Belief, including the Beyond Belief Network, which is basically um, a support system for uh, service teams around the United States for atheists and humanists and agnostics and all that good stuff, as well as the uh, Humanist Disaster Recovery Program. So that's uh, basically what it sounds like, um, it's volunteers who are humanist or aligned with humanism coming together in um, times of need uh, to to support locals around the country and even around, around the globe, though we haven't yet done an international drive. I mean, I'd love to take those pieces one by one and, and kind of like explore them Um and and maybe what we'll do we'll do it in this order. Um, let's talk about the bigger picture first. Foundation Beyond Belief. What what's the vision for Foundation Beyond Belief? Uh, kind of what what is the day to day operation of that look like? Yeah, I mean we should definitely go through those programs because each of those programs could be its own nonprofit truly, and they sort of compete with each other for attention. And I think Foundation Beyond Belief maybe loses out a little bit in in terms of total understanding. Um, and the name truly is not too descriptive. So Foundation Beyond Belief was started in uh, 2010, 2009, 2010, and basically it was started in recognition of the fact that there weren't a whole lot of channels for philanthropy or um, international or even national level volunteering that were specifically geared toward the uh, atheist, humanists, and agnostics. And that that lack of opportunity had a direct impact on rates of philanthropy and rates of volunteering. So um, Dale McGowan, who was the one who started Foundation Beyond Belief, was responding specifically to some of the takeaways from the American Grace uh, book, um, which encapsulated some fantastic studies. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with them. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Right. And so the not not to, you know, it's a Robert Putnam book, isn't it? Ex exactly. Yeah. yeah. Putnam and Campbell. Right. And obviously there were a lot of big takeaways. It's it's a huge book. I highly recommend it. Um, but one of the takeaways that was of particular relevance to the um, non-theistic community was that though 
the rates of volunteering and philanthropy were lower for the people who were unchurched. Hmm. It was actually more correlated, like the differences were more correlated with people who were within a community, whether atheists or agnostics, that allowed them to give and to volunteer. So that included, you know, atheists who were spouses of religious people and went to church with them. They gave just as frequently um, or they volunteered just as frequently. And then people who um, were very religious but didn't have social strong social ties to a church, they weren't volunteering and they weren't giving. So the, the takeaways of the, the authors and the people who coordinated that study were that um, basically – in order to get non-religious people more civically engaged, they just needed to have opportunities to do so. Hmm. And so Dale started Foundation Beyond Belief specifically as a charity conduit. Uh, basically, the members of Foundation Beyond Belief, they pool money. Well, they donate money every month, and that money is pooled every quarter to vet, like, carefully vetted charities in Millennium Development Goal categories. And then 100% of that money goes through to those organizations and members can choose how their donations are allotted any given quarter based on their interests or based on who the beneficiaries are that quarter. And uh, it seems to be a system that um, people are really responding to. In in five years, Foundation Beyond Belief has given well over $2 million uh, wow. through, that, through that system. Hmm. And you know, that's that's $2 million that represents not a massive, um, you know, population demographic for the United States. So yeah, one to 2% or like two to 3% or something like that. Right, right. So, you know, the, the desire to give is there. It's just that people feel very wary about, um, you know, the, the other channels or the other opportunities they have for giving. And they, they like to see this, um, this secular branded, uh, this secular branded giving channel. Yeah. I mean, we know that, Philanthropy and especially giving not just time, but especially when it comes to giving dollars is, is directly tied to people's trust of the organization. Um, you know, if we, if you feel like money's going to be mismanaged or used in a way that you don't approve of, you're clearly not going to give, even if maybe the lion's share of that money will go to a good cause. You're, you're just right. tend to be like wary of, uh, you know, even if, even I, I've, you know, talked to people who, you know, want to know how much is going to overhead, you know, even right. at that level, like if, if 40% of my donation is going to keep the lights on and pay, pay staff, then, you know, only 60% of my donation is going to help the homeless or the poor or, you know, refugees or whatever the case may be. And that's why people like, it seems to me, that's why people like donating to Foundation Beyond Belief so much, because that monthly member donation, 100% of it goes through to the charities that Foundation Beyond Belief s selects. Wow. In order for Foundation Beyond Belief to cover its overhead, it has to solicit completely separate donations. Um, and that's, that's a system that, that has worked well for Foundation Beyond Belief in the past. Like I said, you know, it, it engenders trust among the members. But it's also one that Foundation Beyond Belief is, you know, uh, having to look at now because now Foundation Beyond Belief also, in addition to that humanist giving program I was just describing, though I didn't put the label on it, humanist giving, Foundation Beyond Belief has its own worthy causes that that aren't supported by those monthly member donations, like the Humanist Service Corps I mentioned, like Humanist Disaster Recovery, and like the Beyond Belief Network teams. And so the next, you know, sort of challenge in Foundation Beyond Belief's development is uh, figuring out how to get the secular movement on board with those programs as well. Well, that's a good segue. Um, maybe we could 
shift to the domestic programs? Because I know, the, I mean, the lion's share of what we're going to talk about in a minute is the um, the uh, service corps, which is uh, the humanist service corps, which is, as I understand it, um, work outside the United States, which is what you've been deeply involved in. Yeah, that's uh, my baby. So before we get to your baby, because I know we'll take more time there, briefly tell us about uh, a little bit more about the domestic programs, the disaster relief uh, programs, as well as um, uh, I'm now I'm forgetting what you called it. <laughs> yeah, Beyond Belief Network. Yes, Beyond Belief Network. Yeah, so <clears throat> we'll start with uh, Beyond Belief Network. It's it's fairly straightforward. Basically, there are a lot of wonderful local humanist atheists and you know agnostic efforts in the United States where and actually we have a couple international affiliates too but I'll just I'll focus on the the US teams we have more than 100 US teams there's wonderful local groups that are that are doing um social events and doing fantastic service but are looking for ways to expand their reach to make their content as engaging as possible to make their service as effective as possible and foundation beyond belief has a way to support them in doing that and then also to kind of give them rewards for putting in the work i mean they're not they're not big rewards we're talking you know small grants for events and you know t-shirts but we we find that recognizing people for the pictures they put out and for the events they plan and then giving them those little perks um, really does keep these groups going you know in a way they 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 respond well to the encouragement yeah that makes um, sense yeah you know it's 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 not too complicated like i said <laughs> Um, and then the, the Humanist Disaster Recovery Program started out uh, with a simple um, drive component, so uh, a fundraising drive component that Foundation Beyond Belief would launch in times of crisis for its members. So, for example, when there was the super typhoon Haiyan, rather, um, or when, you know, there, well, I, I don't want to say was, there is the Syrian, you know, refugee crisis. Right. Foundation Beyond Belief, in addition to giving the members their, their opportunity to donate monthly, notifies them that they have an opportunity to, uh, give at this particular time of need. And sometimes Foundation Beyond Belief will have already identified a local secular, charity to which they're going to be giving the money and sometimes because it is such a bang bang like we need to raise the money now and we'll do we'll figure out the vetting later situation sometimes foundation beyond belief says you know we know we're going to find a secular charity um we're raising this money now and we'll let you know where it's going and people so trust the foundation beyond belief model that they've 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 been comfortable doing that so for example we ended up doing that with um the earthquake that just struck uh, ecuador mm -hmm. uh, a few months back and um we did have uh a, a strong secular partner. It was actually one of the partners that I brought to Foundation Beyond Belief when I did Pathfinders Project, which was the precursor to the Humanist Service Corps. Um, but we weren't sure who our partner was going to be. And we said to the members, hey, we know Ecuador is going to need the support. We don't yet know exactly who the, who the beneficiary is going to be. But um, we were able to raise uh, nearly $8,000 in a matter of days. And we got that to um, our partner there after we selected them. So that's, uh, that was how uh, Humanist Disaster Recovery was started. It was started as the crisis response drive. 
Right. And then um, Rebecca Witzman, whom I'm sure you're familiar with, yeah. she was the actually I'm an atheist, you know, with Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> Wolf Blitzer, yeah. Uh-huh. After the tornado um, destroyed her house. Exactly. Um, she came to Foundation Beyond Belief with an idea of putting together humanist volunteering teams that would mobilize in times of crisis and would be on the ground to provide uh, appropriate assistance without any sort of proselytism. Um, right. And, you know, that was something that um, it seemed like the movement was ready for and Foundation Beyond Belief was ready for. And so we've had one of those kinds of deployments already and we're we're hoping to do another one this year, but that's um, somewhat somewhat uh, funding dependent. Right. But I mean, it's another it's another exciting development we feel for, or you know, it's another exciting development in the direction of programs and opportunities that should be available for non-believers and for uh, people who explicitly identify as atheists you know, humanists or agnostics. Right. But these sorts of opportunities just haven't existed in the past. Yeah, these are the kinds of things that people would typically engage in through their church or their synagogue or their mosque. Exactly. And and I think, I mean, a point you made earlier, which I think really bears repeating, uh, which comes from American, the book American Grace, is that it's not, it's more the opportunity than it is the religion itself or the belief system itself. I mean, I think right. the belief system's you know, a lot of Christian and the one I'm most familiar with is the Christian belief system does encourage, uh, philanthropy and volunteerism and, and charity. But that doesn't mean that people without religion are not charitable. Um, and as you pointed out, they, they seem to just lack sufficient opportunities. And, and that's what you guys have stepped into the gap and provided that. And I think that's, uh, really huge. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think that. I mean, I, I, I've found myself in sales recently and, mm-hmm. and one of the things I've discovered in sales is that, you know, honestly, the, the biggest impediment to making a sale is just asking for it. You know, like if you just ask someone, like, would you like to give to offset this disaster to help, you know, provide relief in this disaster? Um, you're going to get a lot more yeses than if you hadn't asked. Right. You know, or if you hadn't given an opportunity for someone to respond with a yes. Uh, so I think that's huge. And I think some of it also has to do with identity. And that's something that I want to talk about when we talk about the Humanist Service Corps. But there's this, there's this identity, um, in the, you know, or this, there's this idea, there's this perception of religious folks as being more philanthropic and of atheists as being rather, you know, miserly and curmudgeonly. Um, and that, 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 perception has consequences in both the religious and non-religious communities. And so to have visible representations of philanthropic oriented atheism or of service oriented atheism, I think that has um, repercussions for the ways not just that believers perceive atheists, but the ways that that, um, atheists perceive themselves. Right. No, that's huge. So you've been instrumental primarily in the uh, Humanist Service Corps. So I think we're finally ready to jump into that. And you've recently come back to the United States from being overseas for a while, uh, really with the first, if I understand it right, the first uh, major project uh, under the banner of Humanist Service Corps. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Right. So this was the first year of the Humanist Service Corps, and I just spent uh, about 10 months in Ghana 
the uh, the first team, in fact, is flying back tomorrow. So wow. I'm really excited to you know celebrate their service and welcome them home. I did leave a little bit early so that I could prepare for the next team, uh, but I'm I'm getting a tiny bit ahead of myself. Even though this was the first team of the Humanist Service Corps, we should mention that we we did spend an entire year researching a short list of potential partner organizations and locations for the launch of the Humanist Service Corps. And that research year was called Pathfinders Project. And as I mentioned when I was talking about the Humanist Disaster Recovery Program, uh, Water Ecuador was one of the, the partners we visited on Pathfinders Project. Another one of the partners we visited on Pathfinders Project was called Songtaba, and that was in the northern region of Ghana. And it's a grassroots women's rights organization that, you know, broadly speaking, works to promote uh, gender equity, gender equality in the northern region. But one of the starkest forms of gender-based violence and discrimination there is witch hunting. And so specifically, they also work to you know, protect the human rights of, uh, people who are accused of witchcraft. Wow. And, um, so that, that issue of, you know, witch hunting and that sort of form of gender-based violence was one that really grabbed our attention and we felt was one that would really, uh, speak to the concerns of the humanist, atheists, agnostic folks back in the United States who are likely to be our primary, uh, support group, our primary audience. Yeah. Um, and we also felt that, you know, it, it just, it hits a lot of the key interest areas for Foundation Beyond Belief in terms of, uh, human rights, women's rights specifically, and, um, an opportunity to promote, uh, some interfaith collaboration as well in terms of the context in the northern region of Ghana. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that is not everything I need to say about the Humanist Service Corps, but I think that's enough to get us started. So the Pathfinder sort of program was the research and development type of component of like finding, doing the research, the background work, and finding the appropriate partnerships overseas and, and or projects. Do I have that right? Yeah, exactly. So with Pathfinders Project, we identified a short list of nine potential partner organizations using Foundation Beyond Beliefs, you know, database and then some additional research I had done. And, um, the, the idea was just to get there on the ground, see how the collaboration worked. Also test the hypothesis a little bit, uh, that I was operating with that hy- hypothesis being that with, you know, that shared work could provide the context for discussing these really difficult atheism religion issues that we knew were going to come up. Um, and, uh, then also just to see, you know, how interested these partner organizations really were in, uh, having volunteers come from outside and how well we could imagine ourselves engaging. So Songtaba, in addition to those things that I just mentioned about, um, the work they were doing, they were probably the organization that lobbied most strongly for us bringing volunteers to them. And that was really important because one of the, one of the core components of our philosophy is that we do not, do not, do not impose our volunteers or our ideas or our perspectives on the local leaders. And that, that starts with an invitation. So the, 
the fact that Songtaba was just so obviously interested in us coming was one of the reasons that we did. Um, and I've already mentioned Water Ecuador, so I'll just mention them again. They were an organization that was fantastic to work with for a short amount of time, but they actually really didn't need long-term volunteers like the kind we could provide. And we didn't see a way that, you know, we could really um, carve out a sort of flexible niche for ourselves as a program, whereas Songtaba's needs were a bit greater. They were sort of in the Goldilocks zone for nonprofits. They were already doing fantastic work, but they definitely needed some capacity building support. And that's the kind of support that we feel like our volunteers can, can provide. Yeah, you know, when, when I was a, a Christian pastor and Christian leader, I, one of the things that we per- perennially would discuss was, you know, how to be helpful without this kind of colonial overlay of, right. you know, these, you know, white people or not always white people, but people from the West, at least coming to your poor, deprived neighborhood and providing, you know, the help that you so urgently need. <laughs> right. And, right. And it's from a very Western perspective. Um, sometimes, um, our idea of what somebody needs isn't at all what they need. And, you know, in the history of Christian missions, of course, things have gotten a lot better, but in, you know, in the history of Christian mission, a lot of damage has been done, um, by simply assuming that people are, you know, desperately in need of what we in the Western world have to offer in terms of so-called civilization or development. And uh, so it sounds like, I mean, and I would have expected this, uh, that you guys are keenly aware of that and really working to empower uh, people on the ground. And frankly, if they don't need your help, they don't need your help, you know? Right, right. And even even if they state a desire for our assistance, we find ourselves actually oftentimes pushing back. And this might be because, you know, of, of the kinds of folks they're used to receiving from outside Ghana or what they think that we want from them. But we often find ourselves having to insist to them, no, look, we really understand that you are the experts on this and we absolutely want to support you. But the ultimate vision in this and the ultimate understanding of you know, where the best resources are, how they can best be leveraged and what the ultimate goal should be. That knowledge is in you all, you local leaders. Um, and we're just here to try to help make that happen in whatever way we can. Um, and I do want to say though, there are as many, uh, there is, there as many cautionary tales from, you know, secular aid work as oh, yeah. there are from missionary or religious aid work. And, um, one of our, one of our advice, well, I don't know if that's the right word to say, but one, one of the folks that we've definitely taken some cues from, I shouldn't say folks, groups, one of the groups we've taken some cues from in the Northern region is actually a Catholic, uh, missionary institution. It's called the Tamale Institute for Cross-Cultural Studies. Hmm. And they, just have the right approach. Now, granted, at the end of the day, they are fielding a lot of missionary folks who definitely have ulterior motives that we don't have. Right. But in terms of coming in and truly seeking to understand the locals mm. and truly seeking, I mean, it, it really is about love first uh, and, and, and trying to figure out why people are doing things the way they're doing rather than just simply trying to supplant the way things are being done. Uh, we, we really appreciate that approach from them. And I've seen on the opposite side of things, I've seen some secular groups come in and just sort of steamroll over local partners. And that's always sad to see. 
Yeah. No, I mean, there's, as you say, plenty of examples across ideological spectrums um, on that. Do you find um, that the relationships that you develop uh, between people from the West and people that are native to the place that you're visiting, that, th- that those cross-cultural relationships are in some ways um, as important or significant as the actual physical support you may be providing? Oh yeah, and that that's an explicit part of what we're trying to build when we when we bring volunteers. That was I mean, for me personally, the most meaningful aspect of the work that I got to do in launching this program in Ghana was just getting to build these relationships with people that I will have for the rest of my life. And um I think you know, when when you look at a program like ours, a, a volunteer a volunteering program, it can be difficult to quantify the value of some of what we offer for folks who are strictly interested in something like effective altruism, you know, and they want to know that one hundred percent of their dollar goes to, you know, mosquito nets, you know, or some or deworming pills or something like that. Right. The truth the truth is we we can't you know, we can't prove that 100% on the dollar because a lot of the value of what we're talking about is intercultural connection and, you know, experiences that deepen volunteers' humanism and experiences that transcend any sorts of differences between humanists and Christians and Muslims, but show the common thread of humanity across thousands of miles of difference. Um, I mean, that's, that's where all the beauty is for me. Um, is well, that's just where the in, humanism is. I mean, that's where the humanism is. Right. Yeah. The humanism is in the relationships between the people. And, you know, I think one of the great discoveries, you know, that I've made in, uh, the, the little bit of cross cultural work that I've done is to discover the humanity of someone who's so drastically different than you that perhaps you can't even speak to them. Uh, very effectively because they have a completely different language or their cultural habits and patterns are, are so different than your own that you find it really difficult to relate. But you see elements of a person's humanity shining through and you realize, no, we are connected in ways that we may never have even imagined. Um, to me, there's so much beauty in that. And uh, any chance I had, you know, in my past and I hope in the future to take groups of people um, that may never have left uh, their, you know, Western experience and, and truly experience a different culture, uh, even if it isn't in a service context, even if it's just in a cultural learning context um, is really transformative. I've often said that if ever I, you know, people ask you if you were the president of the United States, you know, what, what one thing would you do? And I, I would make these opportunities much more available, uh, especially for college students um, that don't have the resources to travel to be um, overseas for a period of time, if for no other reason than just to have a face-to-face encounter with people that are drastically different than themselves, surrounded by education, so that you know people could understand that difference does not necessarily mean bad or or good. It just means different. Right. Right. Absolutely. And. Uh... You know, I, I love that idea of exposing as many people as possible to travel. And there's that one quote that I'm not going to get exactly right, but I think it's a Twain quote about how, you know, the only sure cure for prejudice is travel. Um, hmm. 
but uh, then, of course, you do you do have those those important you know colonial questions of well you know like who's getting those opportunities right like right. at at whose expense I mean you don't want there to be harm but often there are unintended harms at whose expense is that learning coming for that's these right. folks coming out of the West and that's one of the things I mean we're a young young program but one of the things I'm so excited about is that we are considering directions that counteract those sorts of effects. So in the future, we want to see not just, you know, U.S. folks or British folks or folks from the Norwegian Humanist Association volunteering with the Humanist Service Corps in Ghana or in, in, in future locations for the Humanist Service Corps. But then we also want it to sort of become an exchange. So we want Ghanaians then to be placed with the Norwegian Humanist Association and to wow, support the work awesome. that those group that group is doing there or the British Humanist Association or the American Humanist Association and can you imagine those folks having that experience and that would be kind of revolutionary i mean obviously there have been cultural exchanges international exchanges happening for a long time but to actually you know draw upon our our Ghanaian youth our Ghanaian leaders to whom we're being connected through the Humanist Service Corps and to see them as as skilled people whom we can bring to add perspective to, you know, major national humanist organizations around the world, that is a mind shift. That's a paradigm shift. And I think it's an important one. Yeah. And when you say it, it just, you know, it's not the kind of thing that maybe everyone would be thinking about on a daily basis because the United States, to take one example, is a you know super powerful country and we kind of think of ourselves only. But the minute you suggest this idea... In my mind, I'm thinking, well, yeah, like, yeah. why? I mean, of course, like, why wouldn't we do that? So, I mean, if we're yeah. if we're saying that we bring value, like our our American <laughs> volunteers bring value, just because we offer a different perspective, yeah. then right, right, it should go the other way. Oh my gosh! And the fact that that doesn't occur to us more often um, is just, I mean, that's that's enough right there, just to say, yep. like, see how important this is, you know. I mean, it's like a cultural blindness due to our supremacy, I guess, is what I would say. Right. And uh, and to have that other perspective is really, really rich. When it's it's also part of the narrative, right? I mean, there's the uh, I've I've never spoken this name aloud, so I might get it wrong, but uh, you know the the Nigerian um, author Chimamanda Ngozie. Yeah, um, that's her middle name, and then her last name is Adichie. Okay, that's right. That's right. Well, so her, her TED talk on the, the danger of the single story, oh, right? So good. I used to show it to my intercultural studies students every semester. I just feel like I should put that in the social media rotation for the Humanist Service Corps, you know, just like once a month at least. Right. This, this has to go up. Um, and we truly do try to, uh, to deflate that, you know, single narrative when we post about Ghana. But the point that I wanted to make is just, you know, that the, the narrative of neediness and impoverishment is part of the perception that we have of Africa writ large and Ghana specifically, even though Ghana is, you know, one of the most developed nations on the continent. <laughs> and that's not the concept that we have for the U.S. I mean, we don't, we don't have neediness as a concept for the U.S. This is the group that gives right. and the other group is the group that receives. And so anyway, I'm just hammering that point home, but, um, yeah, no, it's really a good point. And, and to drop that, uh, reference, I think is helpful for those that are listening. If you have not seen, uh, Chimamanda Adichie's Ted talk, the danger of a single story, uh, it's her, basically her extended explanation of what stereotypes are and why they're so damaging. Um, and it's just done with 
a kind of grace that only Miss Adichie could could do and and uh, she's fantastic yeah she's a nigerian novelist um and a rising star uh in the literary world and i had the chance to meet her when she was here in la a few months ago a few years ago yeah she was touring her her book americana um which i had just finished reading and uh, so my my copy of americana has her her autograph in the cover so i'm I'm super excited about that but she's a she's an amazing person and she actually has a few other um, uh, things, uh, online and in print. She has a little, a little book, uh, We Should All Be Feminists, which I think is, is, uh, very good. Very, very elementary at some level, but just basic, basic well, stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's more of an introduction. And yeah. then she, she was just invited. I don't know if you read it or if this show ever gets political, but, uh, they, she was invited to write a piece of fiction related to the election. And she wrote, uh, it's just, it's just like a couple pages, but it's a story from, uh, Melania Trump's point of view. Oh, and yes. It was so good in the New hilarious. Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah. It's a first, no, not in the New Yorker, in the New York Review of Books. New York Review, yeah. Maybe you already said that. I was start, slightly distracted. No, I, I totally, I totally forgot to mention where it was. So yeah. In the good. New York Review. And it was the first time the New York Review of Books has ever commissioned a work of fiction. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, very first time. And it's really funny. Um, and I wish it were not fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so I great. just feel like it could be, it could be real. That's what's good about it, right? I know. So. I know. I'm like, does she know something the rest of us don't know? <laughs> so good. Uh, especially after the speeches we just had. I wonder how she's feeling uh, about all that. Anyway, we've yeah. gone down a little bit of a rabbit trail, but one that I love because any chance I get to talk about Chimamanda Adichie, I, I do. So um, thanks for giving me the chance to do that. For sure. So can you tell us a story, like we've been talking in rather broad strokes, kind of meta uh, kind of terms about development work and um, kind of the responsibilities that various parties in that engagement share. Um, but you just came back. So do you, can you tell us a story or two about something you experienced there that that either gave you hope or perhaps gave you pause um, and, and gave you thoughts about work that still needs to be done? Yeah, I think I've got the, um, I've got a story that's been tumbling around in my head uh, ever since it happened. And I think it shows how complicated this work can be and how important it is at the same time. And illustrates some of the questions that I was bringing up about you know, who's in the driver's seat of change? Um, I, w- I came into the Songtaba office one day about, I don't know, maybe five months ago. And the programs coordinator for Songtaba asked me directly if I would be willing to accompany two of the facilitators for the complementary basic education program, which is basically a, um, it's a really important nationwide remedial skills program that is intended to get children who have fallen out of school ready to re-enter the public school system. Uh, it's basically, you know, just numeracy, literacy, uh, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, and it's been widely successful. It's, it's one of, uh, the nation's great programs. And in the Northern region, Songtaba is one of the main implementing organizations for the program. So, um, yeah. So Songtaba asked me to accompany two of the facilitators for this program into a very rural community 
because it had been reported uh, through, you know, the, the channels of this education program that there was a human rights violation about to happen. And that was that two 14-year-old pupils of the complementary basic education program had been pulled out uh, to be forced to marry. Huh. And uh, 14 is below the age of consent, even with parental permission in Ghana. 18 is supposed to be the age of adult consent and 16 with parental permission. But in the rural areas, uh, the the reach of the, the law and the enforcement of those sorts of laws is, is rare. And these sorts of things happen pretty frequently. Uh, we, we just analyzed the statistics from the Ghana census ourselves a little while ago because it hadn't really been analyzed and published elsewhere. And we found that, you know, more than 10% of the nation's marriages were from people aged 12 to 17. So these are all people, yeah, 12 to 17 under the legal age of consent. And so this is an, a, a physical real example of that happening, but I was torn. I, I really had to think about it for a few minutes. Obviously, I want to stop that for anyone. But the question is, you know, what is my proper role in that situation? Because the reason they were asking me to go with the CBE facilitators was because they said the male elders would pay more attention if they knew that a white person knew what was going on. Wow. And came to check on that situation. So here I am thinking, well, I want to drive this narrative that change comes from within and that it is the local leaders and the local organizations who have the power to drive development. And I want to counteract the narrative that has existed in Ghana since colonial times that power comes and money comes when outsiders arrive. Right. So I, this is the last thing I want to be reinforcing. And then there's even this, this narrative that's specific to Ghana and specific to our work. And that's that there's a difference between black African witchcraft and white Western witchcraft. We've got the good kind and <sighs> they've got the malevolent kinds that only, you know, drags people down. And not, these are, none of these are narratives I want to reinforce. And yet at the same time, this, how can I say no? Right. Right. Because in this, very, no? in this moment, your voice does have, like it or not, more authority. Right. So I went. And it was the worst ride on the back of a motorcycle I've ever been on. Um, <laughs> we're talking, you know, bi- like single bicycle paths with like sugar cane overhanging. I'm getting smacked in the helmet. But obviously none of that matters. We finally get there. The The crazy thing is, I mean... This is a community that doesn't even speak the language that I had learned. Um, there were basically two main languages represented in the area, the language spoken by the Konkomba people and the language spoken by the Dagomba people, and I had learned the latter. So they, at a certain point, after the conversation between these facilitators and the elders had stalled, and the elders had said, if these women don't marry, if these young women don't marry, we will kill them. Then they ask me to get up and say something. Oh, no. Uh-huh. And I get up and say something, and I, I give I, what I think is just a really passionate, sensitive speech about how I can understand how you know, they would 
they would just be offended by my mere presence and who the hell am I to say anything in this situation? And I actually, I, I wanted to honor sort of from the functional anthropology point of view, I wanted to honor what was happening with this setup, which is that, you know, they're strengthening family ties and they're strengthening the family's economic situation. And I understand what's going on there. And then I just made an argument for, Please simply consider, since I, it's clear that you already understood the value of education to a certain degree, you already put your daughters in this program so that they would have a certain level of literacy and numeracy skills. Right. You knew that that would bring benefits to the family. Just please consider that keeping them in the education system a few years longer will have even further benefits to your family. Right. I said all of that. None of that was translated. What? Because, yeah. The, they just wanted me to say something and then they were going to translate whatever they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> they should have just told you that in the first place. Right, they should have. But Can I you guess just I, mouth some words for about mm, five minutes? And look really sensitive, and, but at the same time passionate. And then they'll say uh, whatever they want to say. Yeah, so, well, they did that. And um, as it, you know, I, I didn't know how it was going to be resolved. I kept asking over the months before I left, you know, what, what's happened with these young women? What's happened with these young women? It turns out they, they were allowed to return to school. Oh, so in that sense, it worked. It was successful. Right. But, oh, just that. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I've already teased out what some of those issues are for me. Yeah. But. It's like a, it's a short term win, but you, you have this, you know, acute awareness that, System systemically, there's a lot more work to be done because absolutely, you know, you can't have a white authority figure step in in every single case. It's just not practical, and it isn't healthy. Um, but maybe over time, by sowing those seeds, it becomes a part of their own thought process that you know opportunities for development for women are something that not only benefits the women but also can serve those other uh, goals that you spoke about a moment ago, which are cultural values for them, which is strengthening the family, economic ties and all of that. Right. And we know from, I mean, we, we, we know from studies about this that women reinvest in their families and, right. and, and, you know, educating a woman has massive economic implications for the family and for the community. And so my hope of course, is that, you know, these two young women complete whatever degree of schooling they can and that the community and specifically their families get to see how significant that is. And yeah. then maybe, oh, you know, good... the next time, the next time that some father wants to marry off his daughter, or maybe he's all, even already made the promise because these promises get made when the, when the, when the girls are first born right? or even when they're just three, four, five, six years old, but maybe he'll reconsider that promise and say, you know what? I think, I think that, I, I recognize the value of this daughter and the value of her education, and I'm going to continue investing in that. Right. Yeah, and, and that maybe the discovery gets made a little ways down the road that these things, these values are not incompatible with one another, that the traditional values of family and um, connection are not um, obliterated by education for women either. Like they can serve as we have, I mean, I'm just repeating myself, I guess, but... They can serve both. Like they, they, both things can happen, and the dignity of the of the women in the community can be elevated. Right, that's the hope. So you've come back, and you said the team has just come back. Are they back for good? And how long were they over there? Well, they're they're actually not back yet. They're leaving f tomorrow. Okay. from Accra. 
They were over there for almost an entire year. Okay. Uh, the insurance actually is what causes us to cap it at just under a year. But uh, yeah, so we credit them with a full year of service, including their training in the U.S. And um, yeah, I mean, on the whole, I would say it was a massively successful inaugural year. It, if you had asked me or if you had told me last July or last August that we would have been able to accomplish what we were able to accomplish by this time. I, I would, I would have said, well, that would be awesome, but that is well beyond the estimates that I have, uh, and what I would, you know, feel reasonable telling, telling donors. Right. But I mean, we, we ran, um, we ran a medical records project and a free health screening program that, provided screenings for an entire community and this happens to be one of the communities where women are exiled when they're accused of witchcraft over the course of those 1000 free screenings we identified uh, 100 people who have malaria and a potentially drug resistant strain of malaria in the community so identifying that early on and getting those people treatment early on that prevents further infection you know and that's that's huge for a community Right. Uh, especially entering rainy season when, you know, when the mosquito population is about to skyrocket. Mm-hmm. And we were also looking at diabetes and hypertension and malnutrition, vaccination rates. We got the community back up to, you know, herd levels of immunity. There's just a lot done there. And we established a new medical record system that actually solved one of the flaws of the existing medical record system and unified people's uh, records numbers when before they had never been able to access previous visits information or they'd never been able to transfer that to new hospitals or anything like that. And we did, I mean, it was such a, such a smashing success that we could never have, we almost never have hoped for that the, the true development dream happened. What happened was the regional health director who was not initially very happy about us being there. I have to be honest she saw the data that we were able pr- to produce and she heard the reports back from the local medical professionals about what we were doing. And she was so pleased that she said, you know what? We need this in other communities and I'm going to spend my department's development dollars to make it happen. Wow. So it's not like what happens in most of these situations where you get a sort of dependency. You see you know, someone in one community getting free resources and then another community says, well, we want those free resources too. Right, right. This regional health director said, I am going to replicate your program. So that, I mean, even if that were the only thing that the Humanist Service Corps had accomplished this year, which it's not, that would have been enough. But I mean, we also did some incredible capacity building work for Songtaba, our partner organization. They had not been online pretty much at all. They had their own website. But it was actually being run by a German company that was just extorting them. They thought they owned their domain, but the company owned the domain. And then it was basically charging them double just to pay the GoDaddy like web hosting fees. So we somehow, one of our volunteers, succeeded in transferring that domain and we're building them a new website. And whereas before they were not able to receive donations online, we have two ways they can receive donations online now, which is a huge part of them moving into their vision for the future with something, which is something that we've also helped them draft over the course of this year. They've, they've been sort of, um, restricted in what they've been able to do by not to say that they're not lucky to receive major international and governmental grants, but those international and governmental grants generally have a three year window and then 
the international and governmental grant giving organizations kind of have a short attention span. They try something for three years and then they're on to something else. Right. Well, what happens if one of those programs was successful? Songtaba has in its history programs that have been really great for women's rights in the northern region but no longer have funding. Hmm. So by us getting them a more stable, separate funding platform, they can now run programs like their girls clubs, which actually get young women in leadership positions in schools and eventually in their communities, or their youth campaigners, who are people who are in the community, educated to talk out about human rights and to intervene when there are you know, potential situations of mob violence brewing. And these people directly stop the witchcraft accusations from turning into witch hunts and lynchings. But these programs have no funding. And so we were able to sort of get that funding going. And we even raised, we helped Songtaba raise nearly $15,000 for their reintegration program, which had lost funding from the major international donors and is really important for restoring the dignity to the victims of witchcraft accusations. So, I mean, some of these sorts of things uh, were, were huge for us and for Songtaba. But I would say biggest development for the Humanist Service Corps this first year in terms of our own program building is that we really understand our identity as a volunteering program right now. Because we came in and we knew Songtaba was doing great work. We didn't know exactly how we would support it. We thought we would just figure it out. That's part of what this first year would be about. What we found was Songtaba wanted us to raise money for their programs. And we agreed it was needed for the reasons that I was just mentioning. But then they couldn't really give us any data aside from anecdotes about why these programs mattered or how they were effective. And that's where we can support them in the future. And I would suspect that's actually how we can support most of our future partner organizations. And that's in measurement and accountability. We can build data management systems that allow these grassroots organizations to improve and expand their work and to identify which programs should be continued. And that will also satisfy the desires of our folks, you know, back home, our supporters and our audience who are looking for efficient, effective ways to have a positive impact on the world and who are queuing in. Finally, I think this is a good thing, queuing into conversations about effective altruism and and about data driven methods. Wow. That's huge. I have two, we're running a little bit out of time, but I have two questions. Uh, it, and one, maybe this can be a really brief one. It sounds like as you're recruiting this team that is on their way back in a few days, that you're looking for very specific people, like medical records, like someone, you had to have found someone that knows about that or, or building like data analysis systems. I mean, I, I would not be the person to go there and do that. Are you specifically hiring, so to say, even though they're volunteers? Uh, people with these specific skills in mind, knowing that when you get there, this is going to be the work that you're going to need to do? Not necessarily. What what we try to do is we try to identify more potential uh, program areas than we have spots available so that then when we see who the applicants are, we have flexibility in how we plug them in or in, in the team that we can create, if that makes sense. Right. Whereas if we only had these four positions and then we only had four people apply who rep, who match those, you know, skills needs, then we would have to take those four people. Right, right, right. This year we did have, we, we were lucky in that we had someone apply who had 10 years experience in rural and hospital settings, including rural multiple drug resistant tuberculosis work in Korea. Oh, wow. And, right. So, I mean, she is not, 
an applicant we are likely to see again. We didn't see her in the, the application or, you know, someone like her in the applications for Team 2, uh, which is about to be in the field. Um, but I would say five years from now, we will be looking specifically for another medical person because we will want to check on the data we collected. And we now have a great medical data baseline. Five years from now, we're definitely going to need to check on it. So we will specifically recruit for that. Right. But in terms of um, building a data management system, yeah, we, we would be looking for people who have experience in that regard. And we do have someone on the new team, team number two, with those sorts of skills. But even um, people with just, I don't know what, what the right word is, but any sort of professional experience in, in other environments, but in, in you know, a, a larger sort of um, work setting, office setting, business setting, I, they are going to have transferable skills that can be used to help collect data in the field in Ghana. Because part of the problem for our partner organization, Songtaba, is that they are just simply understaffed. Right. And they're they're overwhelmed. So even just adding a body with you know a relative level of mathematical competence, right? Who can say, okay, you know, this is how many people who were accused from this community this year, and this is what the circumstances of their accusation were, and actually recording that data. That really just needs a person who's got that you know that as their task, and it might surprise you to know that we just simply don't have that kind of data and we need that kind of data. We don't know what the rates of accusation are for witchcraft year by year. And we don't know what the circumstances of those accusations are with any sort of statistical accuracy. But this is data that we need if we're going to stop future witchcraft accusations from occurring. Right. You know? Yeah. So I can see that it's a specialized set of skills, but they're not uh, so specialized that uh, people with, uh, sort of an average level of business acumen uh, couldn't exactly assist and be supportive, right? And the people who were the people who are applying for our program are people who have at least undergraduate degrees and two or three levels of professional experience, two or three years of professional experience. So right. that's gen. They're generally going to meet those um, criteria. What we what we find to be more important in looking at applicants is the criteria related to transitioning to a foreign country, right? Um, right and right. People who have built data management systems, for example, don't necessarily have the skill set to come and live with us in Ghana. Right. So, yeah, that's so, so true. we, so we look, we look at more, um, I don't know, personality characteristics more than anything else. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's you know one way uh, that people could get involved, a very narrow way, right? Because you can't, uh, you're building one team at a time at this point. So, um, but I, I think you know, in closing. Uh, I, I just want you to tell us how we can both become involved, whether as donors or uh, participants in some way, but also to be informed and hear more stories about this work, read perhaps some reports about Ghana and upcoming efforts uh, just, you know, for those. Because I know, um, you know, I've stayed in touch with Foundation Beyond Belief a little bit, but, you know, even just talking to you, I know that. I haven't been as in touch as I could be with all the stuff that you're doing and that the Humanist Service Corps is doing. Um, so give us a sense of like, how do we stay in tune with, with what's happening and be supportive? Right. So, um, obviously, you know, the, the 
highest need for us right now is in terms of having a sustainable donor or sustainable funding base. So um, one of the best ways to support us is simply to sign up to be a monthly donor, which can be done at humanistservicecore.org forward slash donate. And we like to really connect donors to the impact of their donations. So uh, what we do for monthly donors is we then connect them to the volunteers and then those volunteers provide regular updates to the donors. Um, that's one way, of course, but there are many other ways that, uh, that we need support. So Ours is, in many senses, just a, an awareness-raising effort, right? We need to raise awareness of what's going on in Ghana. We also need to counteract the single narrative, to go back to uh, that talking point, right. that is told about Africa and that is told about Ghana. And that's a lot of what we do. So we need the audience to be as wide as possible, and we need, the, we need people to help us get the word out. And that's primarily done for us on social media, though we do have... Uh, a blog and a newsletter. But so Facebook would be facebook.com forward slash humanists in action. I did not think that name through very clearly when I made it because humanists in action is not obviously what we're about. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. As long as people bookmark it, I'll put right. all the links to this stuff in the show notes as well, by the way. So uh, if you're listening to, and driving, don't try to write this down. Right. It'll be, it'll be online in the notes of the show. But Contrary to the name, we are highly active. We are not inactive. And then, of course, uh, <laughs> on Twitter, it's uh, just uh, at Humanist Service. Um, so we're constantly putting content up there. And it's not just for good. I mean, we really do need everyone's help to get the word out. But you are going to be so moved by the stories that come out. I mean, we I've, I've already been seeing in this team, too, uh, the volunteers have a really they just have an affinity and an intuitive knack for storytelling and for seeking those relationships that we were talking about earlier, Ryan. Um, I've already been moved to tears with a few of the stories and I think the, that your listeners will be too. Um, and so getting those stories out to more eyes and more ears is a big part of what we need to do. Well, I hope it's obvious why I think so highly of Connor and the work that he's doing and why I feel so strongly about uh, the work that Foundation Beyond Belief is doing, but very specifically the work that the Humanist Service Corps is doing. It's very close to my heart. It's very close to the type of work I was involved in when I was a Christian pastor. Uh, also, I think it warrants a, a shout-out to Dale McGowan, who is the original founder of Foundation Beyond Belief and who directs now the Atheist Channel at the Pathios website, uh, a gentleman and a scholar and uh, deserves a lot of credit for the work he did to found that organization. Uh, but Connor, um, you know, is back in the United States now, continuing his work uh, with uh, the Humanist Service Corps. And I, I want all of us to stay on top of what they're doing. I want to encourage you to donate. If you go to foundationbeyondbelief.org slash Humanist Service Corps, uh, you can read a little bit more about the work that they're doing. Uh, there are links to uh, Song Taba's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. There's also a link there where you can donate to support the work that Humanist Service Corps is doing around the world. And I highly encourage you uh, to do that. I'm, I'm thinking even now about ways that Life After God can uh, create a fund drive or some kind of um, project of our own to support the work that Foundation Beyond Belief is doing in its many facets. 
Uh, huge thanks to Connor for taking the time to talk to us and for uh, his vision and uh, innovation in creating uh, these opportunities. Check out Foundation Beyond Belief, please. Uh, go to their website, donate, sign up for their newsletter, uh, read their updates, and get involved in, in that work. Well, that's about all the time we have today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details